Time for short play. Alex, a woman who volunteered as the financial secretary for a church in New Jersey, has been charged with embezzling over half a million dollars to pay for thousands of online purchases, car loans, satellite TV, cell phone bills, even her own wedding. Ah, you know, Nick, that's just too bad. If only she had first hosted a televangelist program, then she would have gotten a promotion. Ah, that was it. Yeah, of course. One man's embezzling is another man's fundraising. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, James chapter 2. That's right, James chapter 2. If you haven't listened to James chapter 1, go back and read that. It's in the archives, and definitely read the chapter before listening to the episode because we won't read the chapter as a whole. We're diving into questions about the chapter. We assume you already know what it says, and here we are diving into, right off the bat, verse 2. James gives a hypothetical situation about someone coming into their assembly. Now, Nick, what is the assembly? So uh, a lot of times the question about the assembly uh, comes down to whether James is speaking of their the meeting itself, where they are assembled together, or the meeting place, uh, the building right. where they would meet, or are both in view. Sure. Um, that James would refer to the place of meet, the, the, the actual meeting place, that has support in that these are Jewish Christians who are from the Jewish culture that included the synagogue as the meeting place. And in the second place, the continued use of the synagogue for a meeting place that uh, the church, they, they did that. They would kind of adopt the synagogue as a meeting place. You see this in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 18, verse 19, chapter 19, verse 8, Paul regularly shows up at synagogue on the Sabbath. So were these Christians continuing to meet at the local synagogues for worship? It made, it's likely, I think, the synagogue was a place for prayer, the teaching of the law, the reading of Moses. Uh, it was just a general place of assembly. So there is that perspective on this. However, it is equally likely that James is using the term here, synagogue, because that's literally what it is in the original language, using it in the sense of simply an assembly of Jewish Christians, uh, wherever that happens to take place. And in favor of this view is when you dig back into your Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that's called the Septuagint, there's support there for the use of this term, synagogue. It's used frequently to speak of the gathering of Israelites as either a group, uh, just a group of them, or as the whole nation of Israel. In fact, the Septuagint never uses synagogue as the house of meeting. Even the rabbis seldom use the term in that way right. as the actual meeting place. Uh, the Aramaic words also regularly denote the gathering itself as opposed to the meeting place. And only later, after the completion of the Old Testament, did that word, synagogue, come to mean the place of assembly for the Jewish people. Right. Uh, in other words, the synagogue. This, of course, is the Jewish synagogue, and it has uh, the earliest roots date back to uh, post-exile. Earliest record seems to have been around the 3rd century B.C. 
Regardless, no doubt these Jewish Christians would have been familiar with the Septuagint and also Sunagoge, as it's used there. And I mean, they were familiar with the Old Testament. Um, hearing the Old Testament read regularly on the Sabbath in the synagogue. But then again, where was it being read? It was being read in the synagogue. And so perhaps both could be, both the, the assembly itself as well as the meeting place could be in view here when James is speaking of your assembly, or literally your synagogue. My take at least. Alex, well, what do you think? Yeah, I think it could be both. I tend to see this particular instance of the assembly, you mentioned in the Greek, synagogue, as a reference to the event and not necessarily a fixed location. I think that was your uh, second option you listed there. Obviously, churches met. They needed to meet somewhere. However, wherever they met could legitimately be called the assembly or the synagogue. Remember, James's audience, uh, they're dispersed, chapter 1, verse 1. They're undergoing various trials, verse 2. So it's unclear whether or not they had access to an official synagogue building. You know, wherever James has in mind for their meeting place, apparently, in the scenario we're going to read next, there are some seats that are better than others. Uh, in the context of preaching and teaching, though, I'm not so sure one seat would be better than another as long as you could hear. Uh, but perhaps the scenario James has in mind was their fellowship meal, uh, sometimes called their love feast, since it was common to view seats at the table and closest at the table to the host as seats for honored guests. We get that idea in Matthew 23, verse 6, Luke 14, verses 7 through 11. And the fellowship meal, we know that was still a part of the assembly in the first century. When we read Paul's letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. So lots of interesting things about the assembly, what that means, uh, where is it, uh, event versus location, both and interesting to think about as we move forward in James's illustration. Now, in James's illustration, there's a rich man who comes in, there's a poor man who comes in. Is the rich man a visitor, or is he an actual member of the congregation in verse 2? What do you think, Nick? Well, the fourth verse may give us a clue uh, as to what James has in view here, where it says, have you not made uh, distinctions among yourselves. That among yourselves, that may be the clue here that indicates that we're dealing with uh, both wealthy and poor Christians. And so the, the rich man here could be a wealthy brother in the church. Um, that's uh, kind of what uh, can be seen here. What do you think? That's certainly possible. There are wealthy Christians and poor Christians among this group that James writes to. I view both the rich man and poor man in this illustration as visitors coming to the assembly, perhaps being welcomed at the fellowship meal and invited to stay for the teaching. Paul mentions unbelievers coming into the Corinthian assembly in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 22 and following. So we know that this did happen. And James will say in a few verses that, hey, it's the rich who are the ones dragging you into court and blaspheming the glorious name. So I don't think the rich visitor is a believer who is doing this kind of thing, blaspheming the name of Jesus. James is basically saying, hey, that rich guy visiting church today, isn't that the guy who took our brother to court the other week? Why are you treating him better than the other visitors? 
oh, it never hurts to make rich friends, you say. Huh. <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to maybe get to some of these evil motives that James mentions in verse 4. What do you think, Nick? What are the evil motives James is alluding to? Yeah, my English standard says evil thoughts. Um, in a word, seems like it's favoritism. Showing preference to the rich man <clears throat> over against the poor man. These evil thoughts have led to these unjust distinctions among people. And James's question is uh, rhetorical then, and that's the question in verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He anticipates, of course you've done this. He anticipates uh, them recognizing that, yeah, that's exactly what they've done. So um, truly Christian behavior must flow from a truly Christian heart and mind, which would be to the exclusion of these evil thoughts, these evil motives. Um, So uh, my take, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, you mentioned James calls them judges with evil motives. Hmm. You mean like a judge who would take a bribe to rule in favor of the rich? Mm, (laughs) Seems that uh, some of the Christians have become just like the corrupt judicial judges who rule against the poor Christians when brought to court by the oppressive rich. You see that in verse 6, and we'll get there in just a minute. I think James will question the motives of certain Christians once again when we get to chapter 4, verse 3, saying that, you know, they only pray to God to gift them with things so that they can spend it on their pleasures, even though their poor brethren around them are clearly suffering. You know, whether it's a a double-minded prayer to God or showing partiality to the rich visitor, the foolish man thinks only of himself in the end, and to him, the ends justify the means. Hmm. I think that's what James is hitting at here. Now, again, in verse 4, here's a question. Are distinctions then and judgments being made among Christians, is that something always condemned in Scripture, Nick? No. However, the word that James uses here, every time this word is used in the New Testament at least, uh, it's used in a seemingly negative way, a negative connotation. Uh, So um, to talk about distinctions and judgments, I think you have to uh, look elsewhere. At least uh, it comes with a different word. Sure. than what James uses here, which is, by the way, diacrino, for those who are interested in that. But that's the word James uses, and you search through the New Testament, and it's, it's always used in a negative way. What I found, at least, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, and I think also context has to drive the theological bus here. Right. We must be careful to clearly define what we mean and what others mean by the word judge. That's one of those uh, theological trigger words, right? Don't judge me. Sometimes judging is called for like in 1 Corinthians 6, where the context was settling disputes within the church, and in 1 Corinthians 5, where there was a matter of church discipline for issues of sexual immorality. However, in the context of James 2, the kind of judging and distinction that is being made is against poor visitors who are coming to their assembly being deemed less worthy of honor, even though that poor visitor is likely richer in faith, according to what James will say in verse 5. And this kind of judgment, this kind of distinction, is never to be allowed. It's inappropriate in the Christian context, always. 
Nick, verse five, he says that the poor of this world are rich in faith. Who are the poor of this world in verse five? Uh, yeah, that <clears throat> phrase seems to be talking about those people who are uh, destitute, who are without wealth. They stand juxtaposed to the rich in the world, and by worldly standards, they are poor. But before God, they are rich in faith. And that is invaluable. It is superior to any worldly goods you might accumulate. And in addition, he goes on, he says, they are heirs of the kingdom. We'll talk about that more in uh, the next question, but uh, suffice to say that their inheritance is the rule and reign of God in their lives, and even forevermore. And so that that's a beautiful thing. Uh, even though they may be poor in the world, they are rich in faith in these regards. Uh, what do you think, Alex? You know, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the first beatitude, Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Every Christian is to come to Christ poor in spirit, putting no trust in their worldly goods. And it does stand to reason that if you have no worldly goods, <laughs> then being poor in spirit may be easier compared to a rich man. Uh, camel through the eye of a needle, anyone? Matthew nineteen twenty four. You know, it's at this point, though, in James chapter 2, that one can begin to notice the many parallels between this section of James and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And I'll try to bring that out as I see it within the text. And speaking of the poor, I'm reminded of Israel's own history when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC. Nebuchadnezzar took whatever Jewish survivors that uh, were left, that he took them into exile into Babylon. Except 2 Kings chapter 25 verses 11 through 12 lets us know that the poorest in the land, they got to stay. <laughs> they got to stay in Jerusalem and be the vine dressers and the plowmen. That's that's incredible. One might actually say that in that particular scenario, the meek did inherit the earth. That is what happened. Maybe there's even some sort of type, anti-type shadow going on for our own eschatology. Any thoughts, Nick? Uh, no, good good connection. Well, in verse 5, uh, Jesus it says that he has promised the kingdom to those who love him. Uh, where does it say that? I don't remember a verse popping up in the Gospels that Jesus says exactly that. What do you think James is alluding to? So, I'll see your Sermon on the Mount and raise you a Sermon on the Plain. <laughs> um, Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain does say, Luke 6, verse 20, Blessed are the poor... For yours is the kingdom of God. Uh, it is the poor who have the gospel preached to them during Jesus's earthly ministry. Um, you can see Matthew chapter eleven, verse five; Luke chapter four. <clears throat> he also quotes from Isaiah in that particular section. There seems to be kind of a, a predisposition toward faith in God and uh, in faith in Christ. If you do not have the wealth of the world, that there's something about wealth it's just like it's one more obstacle <clears throat> one more hurdle that you have to get over um, in order to come to the kingdom so uh, that could be what is in view here uh, in James 2 5 what do you think I'll raise your sermon on the plane and give you uh, Jesus's last supper John nice. 14 <laughs> <laughs> he may be alluding to something along those lines James 14 uh, John 14 sorry James uh, 
when he talks about those who love him, it reminded me of John 14, where Jesus says numerous times to his disciples that if they love him, then they will keep his commandments. With context, you know, contextually, it's that centers on the new commandment given in John 13, 34, the commandment to love each other just as Jesus has loved them. You know, they already had the greatest commands to love God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. And that sums up the law and the prophets. We see that several times mentioned in the Gospels. But in the new command, they now have a way by which they can know how to carry out these commands by emulating the love that Jesus has shown to them and will show to them through his sacrifice on the cross. Emulating the sacrificial love of Jesus, then, I think is the perfect law of liberty. I think that's what readies us to inherit the kingdom. And we've talked a little bit about that in chapter 1. We're going to talk about more of that in chapter 2. But first, verse 6, it says that the rich are dragging them into court. Nick, why do you think the rich are dragging these Christians into court? What's going on there? Verse 6. Yeah, maybe connected to verse 7 as well about the the, the blaspheme, uh, the honorable name. Uh, so these, the picture could be that the, the rich are dragging these uh, Jewish Christians off to court to bring slanderous accusations against them. Um, anything else uh, is, is just not mentioned in the text. It's kind of ambiguous. Um, is there a scenario that you see here, Alex? I do have a suspicion that there may be some sort of debt scenario where poor Christians have had to borrow money from these rich moneylenders just so that they can get food due to their dispersion and trials. Maybe they're slow to or unable to repay what they've borrowed and they are at risk or maybe have already been thrown into debtor's prison. And perhaps they've even lost their clothing. You know, once clothing was a common form of collateral for a loan. Uh, This exact scenario may be hinted at later in verse 15 about your brother needing food and clothing. If my hypothetical scenario is correct, then a similar situation I think was also happening during Jesus's ministry because there were several hints within the Sermon on the Mount that support that idea. You have to remember, here's a little historic background for you, that uh, even without the trials and dispersion that James's audience is experiencing, in the Roman Empire, 25% of the population uh, lived a subsistence lifestyle. That means they did not have enough food on a daily basis to survive. They were slowly starving. 25%. And 30% of the population lived barely above subsistence, meaning that they were always at risk. If they got injured or couldn't work or died, then they would fall below subsistence. So that means 55% of the population had a real concern for daily bread. Now take that back with you and go read the Sermon on the Mount again. The judging scenario in Matthew 7 may be the same kind of court case we see James referencing here in chapter 2, verse 6. So just my theory, something to think about, go back and look at the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, verse 7 talks about um, how the rich, they, they do blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. Uh, Alex, talk for a minute about how, how are the rich blaspheming? So my take You can see in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 45, chapter 18, verse 6, that 
unbelieving Jews are said to have blasphemed after hearing and rejecting the gospel that Paul was preaching. So the blasphemy that James mentions may just be a general reference to Jews who have rejected Jesus as the Christ. And James asks, in essence, why show these guys special treatment? And I think the likely answer is because of money problems. They need charity, they need loans, and they need jobs. And so they are showing partiality to the rich visitor for, uh, I don't know, networking, to get an opportunity for these things that they need. And yet you look back at the Sermon on the Mount and you see that your heavenly father knows what you need, but seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. You know, verse eight, we see this mention of the royal law and we've had phrases similar to that mentioned already in chapter one. Nick, what do you think is the royal law? Verse eight. Uh, It seems to me uh, to understand the royal law as being distinct uh, from the scripture passage that he quotes here, uh, which is from uh, the book of Leviticus. Um, There are those who say that the royal law is the heavenly legislation issued by the king of heaven that is contained in the book of Leviticus kind of as a whole. However, while James does quote from the Old Testament here, his habitual practice is to reference Jesus in making exhortations to his fellow Christians. We've been pointing that out as we've gone along. James loves his older brother Jesus's Sermon on the Mount and uh, pulls from that regularly. And indeed, Jesus, he sums up the law and the prophets in love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. You see that in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. And so, Uh, While rooted in the Scripture and reaffirmed by the Savior, the royal law, which is synonymous, it seems, with the perfect law in 125, the law of liberty he's going to talk about in verse 12, seems to be the kingly law issued by the King of Kings, uh, recorded in the Gospels, and it is intended for his citizens, the citizens of his kingdom, to walk by that law. Uh, So that's what I see. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. And Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew seven twelve, in everything, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, that was about kingdom living. And this was the royal law. Treat others as you would have them treat you. Now, verse 9, he specifically calls out, James does in James 2, 9, he calls out partiality as a sin. Now, is that true? Is partiality a sin in the law of Moses? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting here. If you show partiality, you are committing sin. There are no pale pastels here with uh, with James. He's, he'll call it like it is. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I, it seems like in the Law of Moses, well, it doesn't seem like it is in the Law of Moses, that partiality is a sin. However, it primarily dealt with legal matters, and for more on that, you can see Leviticus 19.15, Deuteronomy 1, verse 17, also Deuteronomy 16 and verse 7, each of those talking about partiality, and it's always in the context of uh, legal matters, judicial matters, things like that. Uh, So my take, what do you think, Alex? I think that's exactly right. You know, just like a corrupt judge shows partiality for a bribe when it comes to the law of the land— so too have certain Christians shown partiality in the royal law in hopes of some personal gain. And that's an interesting hermeneutic that James is using here, right? 
in a way that he can apply the law of Moses to its truest form found in Christ who fulfills the law in order to say, hey, this is not the Christian living out the kingdom law. Uh, I find that, I think he's going to keep using that kind of a hermeneutic. Very interesting to think about that. Verse 10, he also says that if you break one law, you're guilty of all the laws. Now, Nick, explain that to me. This doesn't seem right. Why is one guilty of all even if just one law is broken. What does that mean? So James himself was a Jewish man, and he has a very Jewish way of presenting a case and making an argument. And and this is one example. Most scholars believe that this verse it has a, uh, a Talmudic reference to it, a, a reference to um, the Talmud, so the collection of uh, kind of rabbinic teachings. If a man do all but omit one, he is guilty for all and each. And so perhaps James, good Jewish man that he was, was familiar with that Talmudic teaching and knew that his readers were equally versed in this to some degree. Um, That's a possibility. However, this seems to be a principle linked with the Word of God. Israel was to keep all of God's law. Uh, Leviticus 19 verse 37 talks about that. Jesus touched upon the need to keep the whole law, uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19. James is merely saying amen to what God and Christ have already issued. In addition, what is seen in this verse is the unity of the whole law. Someone has said that the law is a golden chain whose completeness is broken if you break one link. And so the unity of the law lies in the lawgiver. God, he is one, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. In fact, James is going to reference that later on in this chapter, as we'll see. So failure at one point, in this case, a very major point, uh, having to do with love, that leaves you guilty of all, says James. That is, uh, you have become and you stand guilty before God as a result of violating one uh, commandment. You're guilty of breaking the whole law. So Uh, That's kind of how I've worked through it. Alex, what do you think? You know, I think that James is working with the same understanding that Paul had of the law as exemplified in Galatians chapter 3 verses 10 through 14, namely that they knew from the law itself, uh, I think you mentioned Leviticus 19, that no one is justified by the law. The law says that, but the law also says the righteous live by faith. So I think James specifically is setting up this paradigm, just like Paul sets it up, in order to introduce his next line of argument about faith without works being dead. Um, But even if guilty of just one law, I think the point is, is that you're still guilty. Maybe less guilty than others, but, you know, comparison will not get you out of trouble. If If you're in the pit and somebody else is further down in the pit, you're still in the pit. It doesn't matter. (laughs) And so the Hmm. Israelite, you know, they had the Levitical sacrificial system. They could atone for their guilt through the guilt offering or the sin offering. But even that was a matter of faith to trust that Yahweh would still justify them somehow, even though they're guilty. The basis of that justification, I believe, would remain a mystery until the real sacrifice of Jesus Christ could come and take place on the cross, atoning for sin once and for all. And so James, he moves on from saying, you're not only guilty of all the law for breaking one, 
But then he compares partiality to two of the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are a big deal, the Decalogue, right? Why would James compare partiality with a couple of the big guns there, two of the ten, in verse 11? What do you think, Nick? Again, James, uh, his illustration here, thoroughly Jewish in its import. It was common for a rabbi um, in Jewish texts to juxtapose two commandments. One would be, quote-unquote, light. The other would be, quote-unquote, heavy. To show that it is equally serious to violate either. James, though, he cuts right through the fog, cuts right to the heart, taking two commandments from the Ten Commandments of (laughs) seemingly equal weight. And yet he uses those two commandments to make a point that violation of one commandment is tantamount to violating the whole law, to go beyond the whole law. And so you may not commit adultery, but if you do murder, you have transgressed the law. And in a similar way, that is connected to the partiality bit here that he's focused on as well. Uh, So that's uh, what I see here. Alex, you say? You know, I think it's interesting to look at the two commandments that James picks out of the Decalogue. These two commandments, they come with a death penalty. Uh, There's no guilt offering for a murderer. You get that from Numbers 3531. There's also no guilt offering for adultery. Both the man and the married woman, they they die. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. It was also thought that uh, the Ten Commandments... Those are umbrella laws, which all other laws and statutes could be covered. You know, in my Deuteronomy study, I even found some compelling arguments that the legal portion of the book of Deuteronomy is laid out that way, expanding on each of the Ten Commandments section by section. Now, these two commandments, though, they're also the first two that Jesus preaches on in the Sermon on the Mount. Here we are back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 21 and 27. And interestingly, Jesus also uses these two laws as an umbrella that would cover the sins committed even in one's heart, like hatred, saying that's under the umbrella of murder, lust, that's under the umbrella of adultery. So thus, he's elaborating on the application of the law within the kingdom of heaven, the law of liberty, the royal law, which perfects the law of Moses and surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. I think James intends on using these two commandments in the same way that Jesus did in Matthew chapter 5. And I think that's going to make sense out of why he includes partiality in the Christian assembly as a sin and as breaking of the law, because he's talking about the kingdom law, because it's a sin of the heart. Uh, Now, in verse 11... It almost seems like there's a parallel between partiality and murder. What do you think, Nick? It is interesting that he uses these two commandments uh, because later on in the book, chapter 4, he'll call his audience uh, adulterous. And Jesus' own teaching, as you've been pointing out concerning the Sixth Commandment, equates anger with murder. And so it seems like James is uh, calling his brethren who show partiality, essentially murderers. Right. And if you connect this with uh, 1 John 3, verse 15, I think that kind of flushes this out a bit more about, um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're showing partiality, if you don't love your brother, then you are essentially murdering your brother. And so it's a very serious thing. I think that's exactly right, Nick. And it, he says that you're not being judged by the law of Moses here. 
You're being judged as by the law of liberty. So what is the law of liberty we are judged by in verse 12, Nick? I think this is equated with the the perfect law, the royal law. Um, I think it's also the, the law of liberty or the law of freedom. Um, I think they're all synonymous. This is the law of the kingdom set down by the king of kings. Um, it is not freedom or liberty to do anything and everything you want to do. All the all the income free, I'm covered by the grace of God anyway. It is freedom to be all that God would have you to be as his child and as a disciple of Christ. So I want to emphasize that as well. Uh, uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Did you treat people the way you wanted them to treat you? There's your standard of judgment. And it has real implications concerning works in the next few verses. So let's uh, get there. But first, verse 13, James says that judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In what way do you think James expected them to show mercy? Well, this is couched in the context of Number one, partiality shown in Christian meetings to the rich, uh, not showing mercy to the poor. So, you know, how, how do you treat the stranger? How do you treat those visitors in the worship? That can have an effect on the judgment day. And then it presses on to treatment of the poor generally, as we will see if you see someone who doesn't have the bare essentials and, hey, be warmed and filled, you know, that's that's no good, right? So... Um, and again, this echoes Jesus. You've referenced throughout the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to get on this action and say, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Right. Uh, Jesus says in the Beatitudes. So, and that's the thing. It's, it's out of God's mercy that he has shown to us that we are merciful. God is merciful to Christians, and in turn, we are to be merciful to others. So uh, that's what I see here. You say? Yeah, I'll just give the amen there and echo what you said. This is a good setup for James's plea in the next section. They're currently judging the poor visitor among them. And additionally, they're not showing mercy to even their poor brethren who are struggling without food or clothing. If they wish to avoid the judgment of God in the kingdom of heaven, they need to do a complete 180. That's repentance, and it needs to bear fruit with that repentance. Verse 14, James says that uh, someone has faith but no works. Can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. But are these works of the law, and do these works really save people? How do we understand this, Nick, especially in light of Ephesians 2? So James 2.14, what do you think? Yeah, so James James writes concerning works of the, of the law of liberty, as he's just referenced it in verse 12. So pure and undefiled Christianity is both professing the faith and practicing the faith through mercy. Um, as he's been doing, so now James does once more to exhort his brethren to not only be hearers of the word— but to put the word into practice. We saw this uh, in the last episode, James 1, verse 22, also verse 25. And when you put into practice the word that you heard, you are, in that way, holding the faith, which is, I think that's the linchpin in all of this. Chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, uh, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And that same phrase is used, it sounds a little different in 2.14 here, if someone says he has faith, it's the exact same in the original language, um, uh, but does not have words, can that work to save him? So 
Um, that seems to be kind of how this whole chapter comes together is about holding the faith. You have, you claim to have faith. You profess faith. Are you practicing it? Right. Show me if you're practicing. So uh, I think that's uh, uh, the works that James has in view here uh, as it pertains to the law of liberty. And you say? That's right. And there's a difference between the works of the law of Moses and the works of the law of liberty. James is referencing the latter. If you don't see that difference, then you're going to get confused and think that Ephesians 2 and James 2 are contradicting, which they are not. I like what you said about holding the faith. How, how do you know you're holding the faith? Also, as we discussed in chapter 1, verse 21, last week in the podcast, James is not talking about their initial salvation. James is talking about the preservation and continuance of the salvation which they have already received. And without works of the law of liberty, their faith will be vain. Uh, James will call it useless. So verse 15, do you think that uh, James's scenario here, Christians without food and clothing, was that really happening among James's audience when he writes this letter? What do you think, Nick? Well, I mean, it could be a hypothetical, but poverty was such a common characteristic of Christians in the early church that this this is probably a legit, real-life, honest-to-goodness uh, case study. And, um, I mean, we see this, I think, on display in, in the book of Acts, especially I'm thinking of Acts 4, verses 32 and following, where they sold their stuff and shared with one another as any had need. And so poverty being so common back then, I think this is this is legit here. What do you think? I think that's right. This is not a mind experiment that James is going through. He's talking about real needs among these Christians. Like I mentioned earlier, daily bread in the Roman Empire was actually a serious concern for 55% of the population. You add the dispersion and the various trials that James's audience uh, is already undergoing from chapter 1 that we mentioned last week. That probably means things are even worse for James's audience at the time that he writes this letter. So it is a serious situation. Now, James, all of a sudden, in verse 19, he introduces this uh, statement, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Why uh, did James throw that in there? What does it mean that God is one? How is that relevant, Nick? Verse 19. Yeah, you're going to love this, my Deuteronomic scholar. Um, (laughs) Every good Jewish person would have been familiar with the Shema uh, from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, that Yahweh is one. And and James, he seems to be alluding to this passage um, with which his uh, Jewish brethren, they would have been familiar with it as well. So this is the primary monotheistic confession, first of the Jews and then of the Christians. Romans 3.30, 1 Corinthians 8.6, Ephesians 4, 5 and 6, one Lord and then one God and Father is over all and all and through all. Um, that That is... Uh, in in a summary way, the Christian confession now is that God is one, the, the monotheistic confession. So uh, my take, what do you think, Alex? Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. <laughs> it's my Moses. That's, that's it. So this is a statement of incomparability it's a statement of uniqueness of the God of Israel. 
It was a bragging statement about Yahweh. They're saying he's the best. It's a similar expression used in Zephaniah 2.15, where Nineveh says that this great and exultant city, she says in her heart, I am and there is no other. Well, the people of Nineveh, they they knew that there were other cities, other countries, uh, but it's a statement of no one compares to me. I'm the best. And there are other gods, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 19 through 21, but they're not like our God. They're not comparable to Yahweh. Yahweh is the creator of all things. He's unique. And since Yahweh is unique and incomparable, he demands exclusive loyalty from his followers. In other words, commandment number one. That's what it means. Yahweh is one. It's being understood as a description of uniqueness and power, which will help to explain the next question. Why does James mention demons? Who are the demons? Verse 19. So we'll start with that second part first. Who are the demons? They are evil incorporeal beings. And that is, they, they don't have a physical body. They are spiritual beings and they are evil. They are malevolent. Second, uh, the first part of the question, why does James mention them? Well, it seems like James says that the demons, they have monotheistic belief. Uh, that is, they know the reality of God. The only effect, though, that faith has on the demons is fear. And it's the kind of fear you get like when your hair, you get the goosebumps and, and the hair stands up on your arms. That's, that's the idea of the fear there uh, that uh, James mentioned. So James, he appears to be saying... You know, faith without works, that is demonic faith. Even, even even demons have that kind of faith. So you assent to the truth, even Christian truth. Okay, that's, that's not enough. Faith must be coupled with action. So indirectly, James may be asking um, if their faith is any different than demonic faith. Hmm? Right? <laughs> um, so uh, that's what I see. What do you say? All right, well, so... You and I have different uh, demonology, demon, demonological understandings. We do. So from my perspective, demon is an umbrella term, that, and I didn't make this up. There's, there's, there's stuff for this. Demon is an umbrella term that can refer to different types of beings depending on the context. So in this particular context, we'll just focus on that. James, I believe, is thinking about Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 32, verse 17, it mentions sacrifice to demons, and it calls those demons new gods. If James is reading the Septuagint, which he probably is, then we have an even clearer case in Psalm 95, uh, verse 5. That's in the Septuagint. I think in the Masoretic text is Psalm 96, verse 5. So here's what that says. It says, all the gods of the nations are demons. But the Lord made the heaven. See that uniqueness that Yahweh is the creator. He's incomparable. So who are the other gods then? These gods of the nations who are demons? Well, back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 32, verses 7 and 8. I recommend the English Standard Version for this. It says that Yahweh divided mankind. When did he do that? I think he's referencing to Babel, the Tower of Babel. He divided them, though, according to the number of the sons of God. And again, if you're in your Septuagint, it's a home run. It says he numbered them according to the angels of God. So for simplicity's sake, 
let's call these demons fallen angels and rulers of the nations. These are the demons that James likely has in mind. Now, there are other beings who are not angels who are different that could also be called demons, and that's another topic for another time. But why would these demons, these fallen angels, these rulers of the nations, why would they shudder? It is because they are well aware of the uniqueness of Yahweh and his power. They used to be in his presence. In other words, Yahweh is one. In fact, we may have a little parallel between James chapter 2 and Psalm 82. And I, I get a little nerdy and excited about this part, so bear with me. Psalm 82 verses 1 and 2 says, God, this is English Standard Version, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Does that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like James 2? The people James has in mind are not working the works of God, Yahweh, but rather they're working the works of the gods, the demons. <laughs> and so even the gods, though, they shudder at Yahweh's judgment. Psalm 82, verses 6 through 7, it says, Yahweh says to those gods, You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. I think James's point is that if even the gods or these demons that he has in mind shudder, if they shudder at Yahweh's judgment, then how much more should these foolish men shudder and repent? Not that the gods or demons ever did repent, but that for James's audience, they still have time to make their choice. They can come back from the error of that uh, partiality, of that sin. And that's how he ends the book in chapter 5, verse 20. If you bring your brother back from the error of his ways, you can save his soul from death. Any thoughts there, Nick? Um. Yeah, I got a lot of thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Suffice to say, and you already said it, we have differing demonological outlooks we do, on this. We do. And, so. maybe and we, that's okay. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll do a whole series on that. We'll see. Sort of play after hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the meantime, yes. Verse 21 through 23, James will go on to give his, uh, his primary example of faith. And it's with Abraham. And he mentions a couple points in Abraham's uh, faith journey, and it begs the question, how can Abraham be justified both by faith at first, you know, in Genesis, I think it's 15, right? But also later by works in Genesis, is it 22? Uh, can you yeah. make sense out of this, Nick? What does this mean? So he starts off with a rhetorical question. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? The reply would have necessity been, yes, Abraham was justified by works in this action. And that, as you mentioned, it comes from Genesis 22. Uh, and that account shows <clears throat> how faith works together with works <clears throat> in order to add what is yet lacking in order to render a thing complete, which is literally, and we'll talk about perfected faith in a, in a moment, but that's literally the idea there. Uh, faith works together with works in order to add what is yet lacking, in order to render a thing complete. Uh, what's fascinating is that James views Genesis 15 and verse 6 
um, which he quotes in verse uh, 23 there, Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. James kind of views that as somewhat prophetic. He says that the scripture was fulfilled, and that scripture he had in mind is Genesis 15, verse 6. Only when Abraham lays his son on the altar and considers him as good as dead, which is what Hebrews eleven nineteen tells us, that's when faith is completed or made perfect by his works. Abraham had been declared righteous in Genesis 15, before he had a son even. As a righteous man, he maintained his justified standing by obedience to God in offering up Isaac in Genesis 22. By his obedience to God, Abraham was styled as a friend of God, a moniker which remained with him throughout Scripture. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, Psalm 25, verse 14, Isaiah 40, verse 8, he is friend of God. And so James, speaking to his uh, Christian brethren, he explains that while they may have been declared righteous at the baptistry when they became Christians, and they were declared righteous, saved people manifest their faith and continue to be justified by God by maintained obedience. And so if Christians would be friends of God and remain friends of God like Abraham, then faith must manifest itself in actions, namely obedience to the Word of God. So uh, that seems to be, again, this can be a tricky section here, but that seems to be the train of thought that James is following here in verses 21 through 23. Uh, what do you think, Alex? I think that's right. And the entire passage depends on understanding salvation as both something to be received by faith and preserved through works, which will in turn perfect our faith. You can't separate these two, and James goes through great lengths to, to make that known. So let's zero in on verse 22, Alex. I mentioned it just a moment ago. You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. Alex, what does it mean to have one's faith completed or one's faith perfected? Yeah, that's right. Perfection or completion of faith. That is the goal that James already set forth in chapter 1, verse 4. That is accomplished, as he already said, through endurance of trials. And now one can say that for James's audience, those trials and endurance will necessarily include the feeding and clothing of their poor brethren, in verse 15. Even if that requires personal sacrifice and a letting go of selfish ambition. And he'll mention that more later on in the book. What do you think, Nick? So I want to zero in on the language that James uses here about justification. Abraham was justified uh, by works. Um, there in verse 21, uh, righteousness was counted to him in verse 23. Both of these are passive voice verbs. That is, Abraham is being acted upon from without. That is, he was being acted upon by God. God, while Abraham did works in obedience to God, it was God who does who did the justifying. It was God who did the counting. Even here, as we zero in on verse 22, the completion of faith, even the completion of that faith is, uh, the verb therefore completed, is a passive voice verb as well. 
while Abraham has faith, puts that faith into action, God does the completing. God does the perfecting of that faith. And so this seems to be expressed in uh, God's words to Abraham. When you go back and look at the Genesis 22 account, 22 verse 12 of Genesis says, God says, now I know that you fear God. Um, Through the test of Abraham, hmm, testing? Seems like I've read something about that elsewhere in James. Yeah, we talked about it last week in James 1. But through this test of Abraham, God makes his faith complete. Um, and, and so I think that's a bit about faith being perfected. <clears throat> well said. So as we, I don't know why I closed my Bible, James 2, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, case closed, uh, James 2 and verse 25. So, and, and really this whole section here, 21 to 25, James has used a couple different examples. He's picked Abraham, and now he's going to pick Rahab. Rahab, hmm, have we read about her before in the Old Testament? Yeah, over in Joshua, and we know that she, um, well, her career wasn't uh, something you'd want to brag about. She was a prostitute, Um, but James chooses her as well. Why, Alex, did James choose Abraham and Rahab as two examples of faith? Yeah, I think James does this intentionally. Because if you think about it, Abraham, who's he? Well, he's a, he's a male Jew. And Rahab, who's she? She's a female Gentile. That covers the entire spectrum. Uses the same technique I think Paul does in the Galatian letter, right? There's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free in Christ Jesus. If you're clothed with him in baptism, you have been clothed with Christ, your sons of God, heirs of the promise of Abraham. James encompasses here with these two examples— Abraham and Rahab. He encompasses the entire spectrum by which faith, if expressed in works, can make one righteous, justified, and saved. And this contrast also allows James to illustrate how God shows no partiality, right? This is the problem he's trying to help his audience fix. He is driving home the theological message already begun earlier in chapter 2 that we likewise as Christians should show no partiality in our service and love to each other in the Christian community. Nick, what do you think about Abraham and Rahab the harlot? I think you're right on track there with the male-female, Jew-Gentile and all that, Um, uh, the comparison being made there. And also, let's not miss the the rich-poor dynamic that's being played here as well. James has been, and he will continue to deal with, the rich and the poor, the elites and the emarginated, And this seems to be yet another example of this. If they missed the point in Abraham, they would get it with Rahab. Abraham was rich in cattle, gold, and silver. Rahab lived in the wall of the city. Okay. (laughs) Um, So the contrast is striking. One writer put it this way. Abraham was a Jew and the father of the chosen nation. Rahab was a heathen woman. Abraham had many years... Uh, had for many years received a special training in the school of faith, Rahab had enjoyed no training at all. Abraham was a good and pure man. Rahab had lived a loose and sensuous lifestyle. Yet this degraded Canaanite obtained like precious faith with the illustrious patriarch. In other words, she's part of the faithful. So too, those who align themselves with God, whoever they may be, and whatever their background... 
uh, may be, they can likewise find justification from God, even as Abraham did. So uh, talk about a, a, a conclusion to these two examples that bolsters faith. I mean, that's that certainly comes here uh, from James. And it brings us to the end of James 2. That's right. Which just says, verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Right. You know, Nick, I was wanting this last verse here to sort of be a swordplay after hours discussion. You know, no no right or wrong answer, just uh, thoughts from our own minds and hearts about uh, what this could possibly uh, mean for the case of the... uh, spirit without a body, right? Turn the verse upside down on its head. Okay, body without a spirit is dead. What about a spirit without a body? In other words, could works without faith, could that save like an unbelieving uh, philanthropist, like a spirit without a body? And so I thought maybe we could toss that uh, chestnut around for a few minutes (laughs) and see... See where that leads us. Hopefully, sure. not too far into the depths of heresy, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's let's uh, work on this for a second, Nick. What do you think? Can can works without faith can they save? Can they justify? What what does that mean in the eyes of God? So, I think when we come across illustrations like this in the Bible, we need to be careful about pressing the illustration too far or hijacking it in order to make it say something that it doesn't say. And um, so the inverse, the body without the spirit is dead, but the spirit, it does have existence apart from uh, the body. That's true. But I think to uh, then apply that to the inverse of works without faith would be um, incorrect. how is a person saved? This has been, I think, the unanimous consensus of Orthodox Christianity throughout the millennia is that disconnected from faith in Christ, there is no salvation. If one does not have faith in Christ, one does not have salvation. So you may have um, good works from now till doomsday, but that's all it is, is just good works. It is uh, disconnected from faith, and and no, that those works cannot save. This is, I think, at the heart of what Paul talks about in Ephesians two, where he says um, that it is not of works, lest anyone should boast, and there will be no boasting on the day of judgment. So, no, for me, works without faith cannot save, because it's disconnected from the the one faith that is vital for um, for salvation. Um, so, uh, if we're going to use the hypothetical here of an unbelieving philanthropist, hey, I think it's great that they do a lot of good stuff, but disconnected from Christ, um, there's no salvation there. And, uh, all those works will be burnt up at the end and, uh, there will be nothing to show for it. So, uh, why it's so vital then that, uh, every person put their faith and their trust in Christ. Um, God, sometimes the people make the argument, well, uh, you know, why should God let you into heaven? Well, I'm a good person. Um, well, you're not good enough, disconnected from Christ. Only Christ and his righteousness is what will allow us to see the inside of God's heaven. 
so <clears throat> uh, my take on it, my uh, ramblings, as it were. What do you think, Alex? <laughs> you know, I agree with what you said, but there's still this area of silence, of uh, mystery, of ambiguity. Let me give you a case study, right? Okay. So who saved baby Moses in his little ark of a basket as it sat there in the marshy waters? Uh, Who was the one who came along, picked him up, said that he was good, and kept him and saved him and protected him and raised him as his own? That was was the daughter of Pharaoh. That's right. That was the daughter of an evil Pharaoh who would have had she probably not prevented him had that baby killed in a second that was the edict of the pharaoh we learned from josephus that this woman had a name her name was thermuthis and you don't see anything about her becoming a a yahwist becoming a worshiper of yahweh becoming an israelite exiting Egypt with them. We don't know. We don't know what happened to her, if she was alive or dead by the time Moses uh, was the leader of the Exodus. All we know is that this Egyptian woman who is of, uh, you know, nobody, nobody knows much about her, but she's the daughter of a very evil man. She comes along and she does the work of God. It was Moses's mother Jochebed, his father i think his name was amram his parents his sister miriam watching at a distance praying to yahweh begging for him to intervene and to act and did god send an angel no thermuthis came along so is thermuthis then is she lost and damned for all eternity hmm don't know about that I kind of think I know she's in the I, hands of a merciful God. Yeah, I kind of think <laughs> I, I, I kind of think I kind of think she's okay. <laughs> I kind of think she's okay. Why? I think that her work of preserving this Jewish baby boy is reckoned to her as righteousness. I think it was it was reckoned to her as an act of faith. Um, we don't know that we're in the realm of silence. But I'm just saying, if we're in the realm of silence, how can we speak so authoritatively with a broad brush that the works of God, though without faith in Christ Jesus, amount to nothing but pure fire and hell for all eternity? Now, here's another thing that we've said before. God judges and will judge people based on what they knew, and what they did with what they knew, right? So what do we do with that then? Because there are going to be people who didn't know the word of God, who didn't know Jesus, uh, or maybe knew some, but not, uh, you know, who knows how much? Who knows how it was presented? Who knows what their experience was? What do we do with those people? What do we think about that? What does God think about that? So... I think that uh, it's not exactly uh, yes or no, one or zero, (laughs) binary. I think that God is a righteous judge. I think he has a book for a reason, right? Everybody's got a book with everything they've ever done, good and bad, written inside the book. what, What purpose is that for? It's for his judgment. And so I think like a wise 
and righteous and merciful judge, he takes everything into account. He looks in the book and he weighs the heart and the thoughts and intentions of man and woman and he judges accordingly. So I think that uh, there could be there could be some unbelieving philanthropist uh, who could who could still be good in God's eyes. And maybe one day that person will become a believer. That's another thing that we don't know, right? Like God takes notice of people who are not saved, who are seeking him, who are doing good things. I think of Cornelius, right? In the book of Acts, God took great notice of him. Uh, These are the people we're supposed to look for, right? Then Jesus tells disciples, look for people of peace from city to city. Look for these kinds of people. So maybe this kind of person is receptive. Of course, that doesn't mean that um, you get to be, uh, you get to have an excuse for your evil actions, right? You get to have a a get out of jail free card, right? Because you uh, bought enough indulgences for you and your family. (laughs) It's like, no, that doesn't work. Doesn't work that way. But there's more layers of complexity. That's why uh, this is an after hours uh, swordplay discussion. So back balls back in your court, Nick. Any what do you think? Any final thoughts there? Well, <clears throat> you've, you've talked about the the area of silence, and, and where I differ on that is I don't think there is silence as it pertains to the necessity of faith. Hebrews eleven six says, "Without faith, it is impossible to please Him that is God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him." And so, I mean, we can speculate about whether Moses' mom sought God or not, but it seems to me that if she didn't, and she didn't even believe and have the, 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 the confession, we just talked about the monotheistic confession, God is one, right, that God exists, Yahweh in particular, then, um, uh, you know, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Faith is a non or is a, is a, is an essential it is a non-negotiable uh, one must have faith in uh, in God the one true and only God must have faith now under the new covenant in Christ as well so for those who have not heard the gospel I think our imperative is clear how can they hear unless people are sent they need people need to go and preach the gospel we, we don't get to just sit idly by and think, well, you know, hey, you know, God's a merciful God. That's true. God is a merciful God. God's a gracious God. But um, uh, there is an evangel. there needs to be an evangelistic urge, an evangelistic zeal in God's people, which, you know, I think the argument could be made. It has waned in uh, recent years. Christians need to be about uh, getting the gospel to everyone who needs to hear it, and that's everybody. So... um, so that's what I would say in rebuttal, <laughs> you say. <laughs> well, what about another thing we've mentioned about degrees of reward and degrees of punishment? Of course, we need to get sure. the gospel out. We want people to receive their reward. We want them to both be saved and to work so that they can be rewarded for their work. And yet, if there are degrees of punishment— does it not stand to reason that someone who, though not knowledgeable of Yahweh, but still knowing good and evil and choosing to do what is good, 
Paul acknowledges that Gentiles, they, they know what good is. They, they know what evil is. He says that in Romans. If they are working out of what is good, like Thermuthis, her, her act of faith in working to protect baby Moses, is it possible that these kinds of people from their works, which James says can't quickly be separated from what faith actually is. In other words, faith can't be solely or purely in and of itself, some sort of mental acknowledgement or attainment of special facts and knowledge. No, it also has to do with what they do. What about the parable of the two sons where Jesus says there was a man who had two sons and he told the first to go out into the field and work, and he said yes, but then he didn't actually do it. Uh, and then he said to the other son, go out into the field and work, and he said no, but he changed his mind, and he went out and did it. And he asked who did the will of his father, and he said, well, the second son who changed his mind and went out and did it. What about these people who are doing the works of God, who are doing the will of their father, even without the degree of knowledge and uh, attainment of who this God is? that we have in Christ Jesus. I think there's something there. If I remember right, <clears throat> yeah, he changed his mind, right? This, the, the, the one son who said, I will not. He changed his mind, which another word for changing your mind is repentance. Um, yeah, and so in, you also brought up the, the Luke 12 parable of the degrees of punishment, and that is uh, one place you can go to that does seem to teach that there are degrees of punishment. And that the severity of the punishment is dependent upon knowledge. And so if you knew more and you didn't act on it, there's worse punishment than if you did not know in the first place. But there's still punishment. Sure. I think that's that's the point. Sure. So. There's still punishment. Uh, that's fine. But that means that it's not one and ones and zeros, right? It's not binary. It's not Thermuthis is forever eternally condemned to hell. Again, just her as a case, as an example, right? Or at least the hottest part. <laughs> that's harsh. Yeah. So, you know, there's something there. There's something there. So that's, 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 that's where I'm at. That's what I think. I think there's something to that, but we're in an area of uh, silence and debate, and I think uh, liberty in our own uh, personal faith. It doesn't uh, mean we, like I think you gave the, the example, it doesn't mean we aren't supposed to go spread the gospel and make disciples, right? Just thinking everyone's going to be fine as long as they uh, try to be good people. It's like, no, that's not. That's not what I'm saying. That's that's not what I mean. The world uh, is better and will be better for more Christians. The the more we make disciples and the more we ready people to inherit the kingdom of heaven. So that is, uh, you want people, you want to you want to treat people the way you want them to treat you, right? And so, what do you want? You want the best reward that you can possibly get in the kingdom of heaven. And so that means that's what you want for other people. You want them to get the best reward they can possibly get in the kingdom of heaven, including, you know, the receiving of their salvation. So that's that's the royal law. That's what we work out of. So we don't have to worry about, ah, is this going to lessen my drive for evangelism if I think some of these people are going to be punished less than others, or some of these people might have righteous works that God will honor. Nah. Eh. If that's the way one is thinking, 
then they need to go back and look at the royal law because are they then still acting out of an emulation of Christ's love and sacrifice, an emulation of wanting what is best in the other person, in the lost person, in the confused person. So those are my final thoughts. Nick, you have any final thoughts? And I guess uh, since we're kind of categorizing our perspectives, mine would be less um, speculative, less mysterious, and more <laughs> let's operate on what we know. Um, and uh, I believe it's uh, clear in the New Testament that faith in Christ is essential to salvation, salvation for anyone. Uh, no matter how good they may think they are or how good their works may be, they still need um, faith in Christ for salvation. And even though we're going to operate on what we know, it does not negate the the weight and importance of thinking through things which we do not know, since this question has been weighing heavy on the hearts and minds of people for, uh, you know, all time. <laughs> and so everybody has thought of this, like this is an important question and discussion to have. And so, you know, it, uh, if, if it's so strikingly like heavy and important within the hearts of the general population, yeah, I think it's worth pondering, but nonetheless, we will, as you said, continue to work on what we do know which is the gospel and the spreading of the gospel and the making of disciples of all nations. So I lied. That wasn't the last thing I was going to say. I added that one last thing. <laughs> so, um, in the meantime, I guess, we're, did you have anything else? No, no, no. I'm going to zip my lip now. <laughs> if, uh, if you want more on James, can't get enough of it. I have written a commentary. It's available on my blog, Life from the Pulpit, L-I-F-E, from the pulpit.wordpress.com, and you'll see in the right-hand column there's a tab for uh, James, and it's all indexed on my uh, blog there. You can read my commentary that goes into even more detail than uh, what we can, are, are permitted to in the time allotted to us in this podcast. Also... You can go into the Google Play Music Store. You can go into the iTunes Store, and you can search Swordplay. All of the archives, all the past episodes are there, and you can download those to your particular device, take them with you, leave a review. That'll help us get the word out about the podcast as well. Alex, if someone has a question, where can they send it? Send it to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear your thoughts answer your questions also uh i think if nick didn't already mention leave a review on itunes uh write a review about uh, something you like in the podcast that will help our ratings uh go up so that the podcast will be more available when people are searching for good bible commentary and that's it for now. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.